Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. I'm Amanda Clute, editor-in-chief of Eater. My name is Daniel Janine. I'm a producer at Eater. Amanda, this week we have an episode I'm very excited for. We are talking to Nick Kokonis. He is the business guy, co-owner of uh, Alinea. The Alinea Restaurant Group. Aviary Next Royster, St. Clair Supper Club. And he is actually the founder as well and owner of uh, a company called Talk, which is a reservation platform that is doing very well right now uh you know nick is a nick is a no bs kind of uh former finance guy he comes from the world of derivatives trading and and we really wanted to talk to him because we hear so many stories that are depressing yeah. when we're talking about restaurants and everything that's so fucked about the industry right now and it's nice to hear someone who's doing okay not just doing okay but thriving um alinea is has hired pretty much everyone back yep. after putting people on furlough. Uh, they are doing some really strong business and uh, talk just raised $10 million to expand their operations. So that was a reservations platform that you would assume would be just kind of. It's like Ticketmaster having their best month right now or something like that. Yeah. It's just, you would yeah, never, yeah. you'd never expect it. You would not assume that. But I mean, it, it's it's all the hard, you know, it's a lot of hard work that they've done. It's not just that some magical loophole. No, no, no. They they um, changed what they were doing in a pretty dramatic fashion. So we are going to talk to Nick and then we're going to talk about a couple fun stories. Some fun. We do. The stories at the end are fun and light and Nick is fun. And this is a good, fun episode of Eater's Digest. And there's there's one serious one, but mostly some mostly some fun stuff. So here is Nick Kakonis. Uh, okay, well, Nick Konis, thank you for coming on the show. Great to be here. For people who don't know, can you outline how many restaurants are in your group? Yeah, so um, depends how you count, I guess. But we have Alinea, which is the flagship, and we opened that in 2005. In 2010, we opened Next and the Aviary. Uh, Aviary is a high-end lounge, and Next is like a, a morphing restaurant. And then uh, we opened Royster a few years after that, and then St. Clair Supper Club. I was hoping first you could you could talk us through what happened, uh, just a quick overview of the Alinea timeline, and then I think we'll get into talk a little bit. So in early, well, in late February, I we have clients for talk in Hong Kong, so I saw their reservations go from you know ninety six percent occupancy to zero, and then. Um, very early March, I saw what was going on in Seattle, which sort of was the early canary in the coal mine in the US, right? Um, and in talking to some restaurant owners there who are on talk and who are looking to try to figure out what to do, you know, even before any cases were really happening in Seattle, they, they started, you know, that were public, their reservations were down 20 or 30%. Right. 
as a former trader, as someone who follows markets and who looks at statistics and, and enjoys that aspect of, of the hospitality business in, in order to like provide better hospitality to optimize operations and all those things, I very quickly extrapolated it to my own restaurants, to the Alinea Group, and said, we need to put safety precautions in place. So we weren't in the mindset of we're going to close. It's like, how do we operate safely right now? And that was before really anything had happened in the Chicago area um, or even in New York. Like, you know, it was just before that. And I think it was on March 6th or 8th or something like that. I tweeted, the hospitality industry is about to be decimated. It's 4% of GDP. And that's because I was basically convinced that we weren't going to avoid all of this and that there was no way to operate a restaurant amidst it. Um, I talked to some doctors who I, who I know very well here in Chicago and said, what do I need to do to protect our team? So I brought in, we have about 22 front of house and back of house managers across the group in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I had a very serious talk and I was not normal business operations. It was not like a pleasant talk. It was like the shit's about to hit the fan. Am I allowed to swear on the show? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh yeah. I was like, the shit's about to hit the fan and we're going to put it together, these protocols starting tomorrow. And everyone, call times are now, like when people arrive at a restaurant, they're five minutes long. Like everyone has to be either exactly at noon or exactly at 11.50 or whatever you say. Everyone's getting temperature checked. We're going to log that. Um, We're going to do hourly hand washing. Um, We're going to monitor that. We're going to log that. We're going to do that every, all through service. And you can just see on everyone's face that I am the owner who doesn't really know how to run a restaurant. Like, you know, (laughs) um, because it's like, how the hell are we going to wash our hands every hour? Like, that's not possible. Like we have a busy service to do and stuff. And even Grant and, and Steve Bernanke, one of our partners whatnot, had not really seen me go militant, belligerent, you know, I was very serious, like deathly mm-hmm. serious. And I think by the end of that meeting, everyone had the, that idea, you know, that like, this is serious, we have to do it. And then I reiterated to a couple the heads of each place, like, I swear to God, if anyone doesn't do this protocol, I'm just going to fire them on the spot. And they won't have a job for two years, like, wow. because this is where we're going. And I wasn't trying to be mean. I was trying to be loving. That's the, that's the, that's the part that is hard to do as a, as an owner or manager is that I wasn't trying to be a jerk. I was trying to save, yeah. I was working proactively to save the company. When we were finally ordered to shelter in place, we had four contingency plans and put together on how, what we could do, how, what, what is the best way to provide benefits? How much money can we afford out of our capital fund to give to our employees, to bridge them, um, to the point where they get unemployment. So we gave $1,000 to every full-time employee, furloughed everybody, paid 49% of their benefits and their health care. Um, we save for a rainy day. Right. Um, we don't distribute all of our money. We don't send it all to me and the other investors and owners. Nonetheless, I cried when I wrote that email because I didn't think everybody would contextualize all that. They wouldn't know all these employees, these 300 people and their families wouldn't know what was at stake or indeed that we had planned phase two of the plan to get them all back as soon as possible and all of that. So we tried to communicate all of that as effectively as possible and like things you're supposed to do. Um, you're supposed to, when you furlough people, they're supposed to not have access to their email because if they have access to their email, then they're working. 
Um, right. So these are things that don't work in a true crisis. And I see some restaurants and restaurant groups that played by the letter of that law. And we did two for about two hours. And then I called our HR team. And I said, why can't I email the whole company? It's like, well, if you furlough people, they're not working. And if they get into work email, you have to pay them. And I was like, <laughs> I will break the law on that because this is a yeah. pandemic. <laughs> um, and so we were nimble. And then we said, we got to do carry out. Um, in Chicago, very different than New York. We have cars. People can pick up food. It's safe to do that. And we had already had these protocols in place for a week and a half. And so we knew how to do the cleaning and the distancing of the kitchen and all of that. So I've heard you talk about the contingency plans a little bit, but like which plan did you follow? Was there one that was planning for a more, like even more severe situations or even yeah, more severe Yeah, there was one where out? like, you know, it's this full zombie apocalypse and we can't leave our homes at all, which seemed plausible, by the way, because in Italy, yeah. they they did a lockdown of the type where you can only exit for medical or, or groceries. Right. So mm -hmm. that was certainly possible on the spectrum. Um, and that, that one, we would not have been able to do food service. Um, and so we did not, obviously, um, we did not do that one. And, and we considered, you know, not reopening for carryout too. Um, yeah. It was only because I spoke to, to doctors who I, I knew and trusted, um, that I felt comfortable to do that. Um, and also, by the way, we didn't, we invited people back to work. We did not require people to come back to work, which are two very different things. Could you just talk us from the first delivery or the first takeout day to what's going on now? Yeah. So the first takeout day was, I think the 16th of March or so, 16th, 17th, something like that. You know, we were going to do it at Alinea first because we had confidence in the ability there. We've done pop-ups around the world and crazy private events and stuff. So, you know, we're pretty, pretty resilient. So we basically just said, I want to do $35 comfort food, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the normal price, normal price for Alinea is 350 bucks or so, you know, right. when you're all in, um, going there. And again, this was like one of those discussions where I was, we're very collaborative and I stay out of Grant's kitchen, you know, like, do I, do I have input in the food? Yes. Is, is, he, is it fair to ignore my input? Absolutely. Most of the time it's ignored in a good way. And this time I was like, uh-uh, you get $35 <laughs> to sell this and we're going to have to do a lot of them to have it matter. If we do a hundred of them, that's 3,500 bucks. I ain't keeping the lights on and getting people back to work. On a, We have yeah. 80 employees there um, from 5 a.m. till 3 a.m. every day. Um, and it's 128 people a night, seven nights a week, lights never go off. Like, you know, Damn. door never locked. And I knew what I thought was possible. Like I, first of all, I did not know if people would order food in the midst of this. I did not know if people would go, Oh, $35 linear food. That's cool. Or that's stupid. Right. And either <laughs> one was equally likely. Like people think that like, I'm sitting there going like, Oh, this will work for, I'm just like, I have no idea if this will work. I don't even know if people want it. I don't even know if I want it. But I right. do know that if we do nothing, the outcome is absolutely certain. It'll be really bad. Right. Might as well try. <laughs> Might as well try. That's that's like, you know, and I will say this, like our entire team, the one thing, like everyone always says to me, I, I hear this a lot and it really gets me angry. Well, you guys can do that because you're a linear. And what I always say is, no, we're a linear because we do that. Mm -hmm. Like we mop the floors, we vacuum, we polish, we do all the bullshit stuff 
that you have to do to get things right. And, you know, the first day we did 500, um, you know, short rib beef Wellingtons, two days earlier, Grant was like, there's no way we can do 500 of these. Like we only have one feeder. We can't do enough of the puff pastry, blah, blah. And then he's like, how do we make it like having a linear touch? And he was like, I need little star cookie cutters to make like a joke with the three stars. Like this is three star food, but not real. <laughs> and how are we gonna do this with masks on and kitchen gloves for everybody? And how are we gonna get the cars through? I mean, it was all that. By the third day, he was like, this is easy, man. Like this is way easier than neuroservice. Let's do a thousand on Friday. And then how did the menu evolve from there? Well, we we then did Coco Vaughn and then Cassoulet. So we started out early on when, when it was a scarier time, I think. We went, let's do French comfort food. Like who doesn't want to have a cassoulet or, you know, and it's also things people couldn't really make yeah. probably at their home. You're not going to get duck legs delivered to your house in the middle of a pandemic. But it seems like it's gotten more, uh, it's gotten more linear as it's progressed. There's more and more, more and more top it, Tupperware. Grant will win out in the long run, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So for our 15th anniversary, he was like, I think we need to do something where we engage people more, more, um, you know, some assembly required. Um, we sold 1,250 six course meals for 10 days straight. Oh That's 7,000 packaged, you know, items per mm-hmm. day. Um, Grant posted a time lapse today of what that looks like. Our dining rooms are production facilities. Um, you know, we we have a minute and twenty second wait times of the cars outside. Two way text messaging built into talk. We ask the car make and model. We greet you by name. We you know three people with iPads out front. Hospitality yeah. extended to the curb essentially. Um, <laughs> so- so what's the what's the most now that you've done in a day? Um, we did just under three thousand meals on Easter. And what is, is it still? It's not thirty five for that. A forty nine ninety five under fifty bucks. Wow! And it's a six That's course crazy. meal. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> we are hitting a market. There's this video that I posted up yesterday on Twitter. These two guys doing shots of Malort and drinking old style, who are just basically like, "Hey, if Alinea's forty bucks, fifty bucks." That's my only shot of ever eating it. And they, I, like, I, I know it's not only, they get ripping drunk. It looks like they're high as a kite. And I immediately tweeted them that it was my favorite video in the 15 year history of Alinea because they were basically like, I hate peas. This pea soup is going to be terrible. And then like five seconds later, they're literally licking the bowl going, this is the best soup I've ever had in my life. <laughs> wow. Um, we are engaging a whole new audience. We've served 32,000 people in the last 30 days in Chicago. That there's no way we would have hit that ever. Like, the, you know, certain people, it feels in the midst of something that's chaotic and awful. It feels really joyful. Did you life. bring back all of your employees or how many people are back? On May 1st, we brought everybody back across the entire group for next Royster Aviary as well. Um, on May 1st at 80% of pay, so long as that 80% was over the legal threshold. No one's under $15 an hour. Um, and for managers, if they were making $80,000, they're not making 80% of that, they're making 64,000. We are doing that with the the transparency to them that we will make money in May and June, um, and we will utilize that money to extend our runway to keep them on longer. I think the thing that I've heard a lot of people talking about on, on shows like this and people in the industry are saying, you know, this is the worst it'll be. And what's really weird from my perspective is that actually this is the most clarity we will have. 
You cannot open your dining room. Mm -hmm. You can do takeout. You can hire people back utilizing the PPP. And if you do that agilely and quickly and successfully, your margins will be the best they've ever been. Do not send that money out and put it in your bank account, uh, your personal bank account. Keep it in the business. Keep those people hired on after we have to reopen at 25% occupancy or 50% occupancy. Because I think the carryout business will decline a little bit as the dine-in business goes up, but neither one of them will be anywhere near normal. And right. that's when things get hairy, I think. Difficult. So you're saying we're, we're living in a bit of a honeymoon phase right now where people are paying restaurant prices for the food they're used to eating in the restaurants and the restaurants aren't paying the overhead of, of their staff and keeping them alive. I think that's a fair, more concise version of what I was trying to say. No, no, no. no it really saying. is. <laughs> so it's been swirling that you had your high, Alinea had its highest revenue day ever. We did. Is that, yeah. Yeah. And, and, but, and, I, and I say that, like, again, I, I'm, I'm aware, I'm self-aware enough to say that that could be perceived terribly. Um, I am not trying to take advantage of the pandemic. I'm not trying to, to make money on this. I'm trying to build a bridge for yeah. our company and our employees to October, November, December, where, hey, we might be asked to shut down again. You know, um, mm-hmm. we don't know. And so I think that the 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 difficult thing and super important caveat new york is very different than the rest of the country so i think that the problems for new york restaurants are are different and unique to new to new york as opposed to la or miami or cleveland or chicago or san francisco mostly right. just around transportation and density and getting employees safely to work um, but so that's an important caveat that i want to you know, emphasize, because I think that a lot of what you hear um, on CNN and whatnot are New York restaurants that have uniquely difficult problems right now. So, but for you specifically, you don't see a world in which you're actually more successful going forward as you've figured out this new line of business and you would start to like forge it with the old line of business or? That's the goal, right? Right. Whether that happens or not, I, I think it's going to get harder before it gets easier. Um, and I am one of those people who thinks that, you know, I, I listen, you know, David Chang is a friend and, and great dude all around. And I, I listen to him and I, I just can't because we're permanently damaged and everything's going to hell in a handbasket <laughs> forever. Um, and I love the man, but I don't believe that. And I don't believe that because we got to 2019 hundred years after 1919, like this yeah, happened a yeah. hundred years ago and yet right. the world did exist as it did for four months ago. So we will get back to that through something, either horrors or wonders of science or something like that. But that's interesting. So how are you like, I'm sure you have a lot of respect for what he does at his group. And I'm sure, and just as you said, you've heard him talking about how it's never coming back like whatever it was, March 24th was the last day ever of yes. that kind. But so what are the conversations that you got? Like, how how do you possibly bridge your philosophies of what's going on, right? Because, like, I can't imagine you're the kind of person who is risking uh, the the health and safety of your employees, right? And if he's saying, I don't feel comfortable putting my people back to work, I'm sure your answer is not, well, you should be, you know? Yeah, no, I, look, I we've gotten temperature tests twice a day for five 
uh, venues now, um, we've in that period of time, we've had one person have a temperature. We got them tested, they tested right. negative. We still gave them PTO in a week off. You know, yeah. so we're, we're being very, 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 very cautious about this since right at the beginning of March. Um, but and we are using science and doctors to do that. We're not just making it up out of whole cloth. Like we're taking the advice of of, of professionals. Yeah. Um, that said, um, you know, it, it's there are no right answers here. What I did know is that if we do, if we don't take measured risk um, in 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 doing this, first of all, if I thought that for a millisecond that we could endanger our employees or the people who purchase our food um, mm -hmm. more so than say a grocery store. And this is where the argument I think breaks down. Like we need to eat. Um, mm -hmm. If you only have grocery stores open, you have fewer nodes of, of food service. If one of them has an outbreak, it's going to affect way more people than if you have 4,000 restaurants open in New York city with really high stringent health code because you want like a system network to have a lot of these nodes. So even if it were more risky, you would still want them open as a means of mitigating aggregate risk. Um, any individual might say, I don't want to do it. Um, but that's different. You know, what is the world of 50% occupancy capacity look like for you guys? Do you think it's workable? Well, so what's defined workable? Um, you know, does, can you make money on that? No. Um, I don't know that a restaurant can make money on that because then you're operating normal business hours. You're going to have smaller labor hours, all that stuff. Um, that said, will we do it? Of course we'll do it because that's a step to getting back to operations and normalcy. Um, we are mapping out outdoor spaces now, um, with six feet apart. We had gone through a year and a half of planning to put awnings around our whole building and we didn't know the right moment to do it. We did it two weeks ago, figuring that outdoor space was going to be um, very important. So Aviary Next, Royster could open tomorrow. Yeah. You know. In terms of the takeout success, are there lessons that other restaurateurs can take from you? Or do you think it's unique to a high-end restaurant oh, offering yeah. more affordable food? Absolutely not. Um, it is completely doable and not unique at all. Um, we've put almost... 1,600, 1,700 restaurants on talk to go um, literally around the world at every level from QSR fast food, pizza places, all the way up to other Michelin-starred restaurants. And quickly, that before six weeks ago was a reservations platform where yeah. people could pay in advance for a spot to eat at your restaurant or any restaurant. Yeah. And 80% of them were actually free reservation. So we sat, yeah. you know, 8 million people a month or something like that, walk-ins free and all that. Um, the critical differentiator and the thing I've been trying to preach to the industry is that the way that you slot your time slots to seat people can be done either flexibly. Whereas if, you know, if you say, you know, Amanda, I, I want to come in at seven 30, the system with open table or resi would then block two hours on either side because it's the average turn time and it would offer 5 PM and 9 PM. Mm -hmm. um, and that's great when, demand is is lower than supply um it's fine when supply is greater than demand whether it be a pizza place or a linea you want to do a slot based system because you can pace out your kitchen better and all that so we took that data structure um and said if you're a normal restaurant not a quick service restaurant and you want to do 
takeout, um, not only does it cost you 20 to 30% on the third-party delivery apps, but they have no notion of kitchen pacing or hospitality tools. It's just putting a burger in a box and sending it with a guy on a scooter, right? We built this data structure with a slot-based system and said, hey, it's really important to elevate the quality of the carryout food during this time and the safety of the delivery or pickup by slotting it in these increments. And what happened is when we showed that to restaurants that normally didn't do carryout, they're like, oh, that's why we never did carryout. We can now pace our kitchens and pickups and all that sort of stuff. So we had about 30 people work for seven days, six days. When I say around the clock, I mean, it was like the pizza yeah. pie, it was like a movie. Um, and we got Canlis up and running and we got a couple other restaurants on the West Coast. And then we got the Alinea group up and running. And now what I see is that um, the restaurants that do a very narrow thing well, there's a win. They're doing great. Mm-hmm. Um, if you take your entirety of your menu and you just slap it up online and all of a sudden you have a normal kitchen operation, anyone can order anything. Not everything works well for carry out. Yeah. Um, and your price points can get out of whack if people can build up their own menus. And whatnot. Yeah. So um, do something narrow and really well and then change it up because we give people the tools to know who they're actually selling to. You're not using a third party app. I mean, you, you're using, utilizing talk as a platform, but you know who all your customers are and you can say, Hey, two weeks ago you ordered the Coco Vaughn. Hey, now we're doing cassoulet. And you know what? They come back again and again and again. Um, so tons of success stories with, um, small restaurants out of the way places. We have one in upstate New York used to do $3,000. Um, on a busy Saturday with four employees, and they're doing about $20,000 a day now. They've hired 10 people. Wow. I think you're going to see on a permanent basis, you know, I gave Eater some grief because I think like five days into the pandemic, someone wrote an article saying, the carry-out business is already done and it's not sustainable. <laughs> um, and I was like, well, we're five days into it. Let's see how it goes. Um, I can say for certain that, you know, just the explosion, even with the th- third-party delivery apps, you can see that it's exploding. Now, the question is, can you do this elevated version, which yeah. is more like, you know, assembly required and people still will like that? I think so. Like we, when we send out a chicken parm, it's, it's fried on the outside, raw in the middle requires 15 minutes at 400 degrees, right? The instructions are in there. You get a much better product than if you just took it out of the box, put it on a plate and ate it. Like it just wouldn't travel as well. As, so we get it to the point where you don't really have to cook. Mm-hmm. You have to just do a little bit of heating and assembly. Now, someone did eat that raw, even though we have giant <laughs> things all over it saying, do not eat this. <laughs> so there is that. But aside from that, um, I think that'll stick around. But is that enough? No one knows. You know, we all know that the the difficulties that the industry has had margin wise going into this. Are there situations where you're saying, I don't see a way out for you. You should take this opportunity to close. Well, I don't know everyone's cost structures, right? Yeah. So I do talk all day, every day um, to, to restaurants. Uh, I've got a yeah. call after this with a restaurant group. Um, to the extent that I can offer best practices, I offer best practices. I say what worked for me. I say what I've seen working for other restaurants. Um, whether people want to heed that advice or not is entirely up, up to them. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. their business. I don't know their market. I, don't, I try to stay really out of that to some extent. I will say that 
I, a lot of the proscriptive things I've seen in the press and whatnot, I completely disagree with um, because they are short-term solutions for long-term problems. Um, I've been an advocate of the removal of, of tipping um, for a long time because I want restaurant um, workers to be treated as the professionals they are. And I use the word professional in the Fair Labor Standards mm -hmm. Act way. And I've sent long, long, long uh, you know, private articles I've written to people in the press, the New York Times or whatever. I, see, I read something about tipping in the New York Times and it's you know maybe 800 words or something. So I sent a 7,000 word email I'm sure they, they love that. Well, they don't dislike it. It's just a really, really difficult problem to solve. Yeah. And so at the beginning of this whole thing, I talked to some congressional offices and said, look, if you want to create a long-term better structure for the people who work, the 11 million people who work in this industry, there are some fundamental things working against them that have to do with legislation. And, um, you know, am I optimistic that that's going to change quickly? No, but it's changing already because when you have municipalities like San Francisco or Portland or Seattle mandate a $15 minimum wage with no tip to wage credit, guess what? They're going to get rid of tipping at that point because you can't make money as a restaurant doing both. So right. I, those are the kinds of long-term solutions I'm looking for. But also when I hear someone say, well, this is a really razor thin business. Um, and I had $10,000 in my checking account when this happened. And for every $100 I bring in, $98 goes out the door. Respectfully, you're not running it right. Mm -hmm. So like if that was in 2019, you were making 4% margins. Yeah. That's, that's no good. Like, you, you know, but you can't like then say like, oh, but I do everything on pen and paper and I make everyone call us or I have a giant line out the door, which is in my opinion, bad hospitality. Like, so a lot of the things that, that some people wear as a badge of honor in the industry as being highly personal or whatever, that was great in 1998. It's 2020. People live on their phones now. Like you're going to have to do a digital version of something. I had people in my own business and in my own company tell me like, you'll never get rid of the phones at Alinea. That's terrible. There's no way you can be a Michelin three-star restaurant and do that. And yet I'm still reading in the New York times articles that are very heartfelt saying, yeah, I don't know if we're going to make it or not because X, Y, Z, and we made 3% margins last year. And it's like, eh, you need to address that last year. Addressing it now is really hard. Yeah. Can you, which sucks. And I hate to sound like that guy. Okay. I, I'm saying all this because I love these people and their passion and their industry, but it's a hard business if you make it hard. Well, I just think that I, I, I'm sure you're catching, I'm sure the shit you're catching, uh, if any, right now is a lot of people being, I mean, as you said, oh, you know, they're a linea, but it's really, it's like, no, it's because of the way we were running before and we were we were set up to at least experiment in this time, right? Like, I think it is, like, it's lucky you're not in New York, right? Because if your kitchen was tiny, I'm sure it wouldn't. I swear to God, if I was in New York, we would have figured out a way to pick up food. Yeah. Day two. It may not have been as much or as good or like whatever, but we would not have done nothing. And that's, that's all I, you know, I don't know what it is I would have done. But we would have done something. Is there anything interesting you're seeing in the data across talk for maybe regions that are doing better or types of restaurants that are doing better? Yeah, I mean, I think the most interesting thing is how much and how fast things sell when someone puts up something new. Mm. Um, so like for a while, Japanese food was kind of just for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, 
not a lot of Japanese places put their stuff up. Yes, like, you know, you got the crazy, you know, $800 bento box or whatever. But there, there wasn't like, um, there wasn't sort of that mid-ground Japanese. There was like the super fast food Japanese. And then there was like, you know, Masa doing the $800 bento box. Yeah. All of a sudden, we started getting all these Japanese restaurants doing just like, you know, normal sashimi and sushi plates and all that. As soon as they put them up, gone, sold out. Like people love Japanese food in America, right? Doesn't matter where it is. Well, and they're not cooking it. Right. And um, and it just instantly sells out. It's if you could open 10 Japanese restaurants right now, you should. Can you talk also about how talk is growing and changing? I know you just raised a bunch of money to expand what you guys are doing. Yeah. So we were in a fortunate position last year um, where we grew 300 percent. Um, we were in 28 countries and we were continually adding, you know, two to 300 new restaurants uh, per month. Um, in February, we were set to do a funding round, this basically the same round um, when this started. And we were just kind of negotiating over the valuation and price of the company, frank, frankly. Um, and I was an optimist um, about what we were doing because we ran very lean you know, whereas others raised tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars and then sold for a few hundred million. We were like, we want to get to the point where we're actually profitable. We want to do this with as few employees as we can, working as hard as we can. And we want to make meaningful ROI for our customers, which meant that there were some things I wouldn't, you know, like the flex table thing, like we have flex and slot. And I would tell some restaurants, I'm not letting you come on if you do flex, because it won't make a meaningful difference. You should just stay on open table and do the same stupid shit you're doing. And that's not VC friendly and all of that, right? But I felt like in the long run, not only would we be better off, that restaurant would come back in four or six months and go, ah, you know what, you were right. Like, and now we have them as a customer that's really valued because they're gonna be in it for the long haul and they understand what we're doing. When this hit in March, I was like, wow, oh, we, have, we have money in the bank, we're okay. Um, I'm not gonna cut my price in half or the valuation of the company in half because this hit. Our revenue went to zero, meaningfully zero, because we were giving away the product for free from a SaaS perspective, and we weren't processing any payments. Um, Talk processed about $350, $400 million of payments last year. That's actually how we make money as opposed to open table charging a dollar per cover or whatnot. All the events and prefix stuff goes to zero. Pop-ups don't exist. So we had Talk to Go built in like a week, and we went from you know, zero back up to um, now we're doing, you know, we're at almost a billion dollar run rate, almost $3 million a day wow. some days. John Shulkin from Valor Siren Ventures called me back about seven days in and I was expecting to get the call of like, you know. Sorry, buddy. Yeah, sorry. Like, cause a couple other VCs that are very prominent that were, you know, interested kind of just vaporized. And so I figured he's going to give me the, you know, well, you know, stick it out, cut half your head count and we'll see you in six months. Cause that's what everybody else did. Right. Like mm -hmm. Yelp laid off thousands of people, open table laid off thousands of people. You know, he was kind of like, what's your plan? And I was like, yeah, we're good. We're, we're, we're back already. Um, and by the end of the call, he was like, we invested in Tesla in 2008 when no one wanted to. And this is the time to invest. It wasn't like, he didn't call me to say no. He called me to say, we love the fact that you guys are scrappy and you're working 24 hours a day. And now finally we think that the industry is going to understand the value proposition of what you've been doing, what you've been saying for 10 years. And it was like the shortest 
negotiation evolved because he said, we'll just take your terms of, of four weeks ago. We were just negotiating that. Wow. And we love you guys. And so I was like, first of all, how great of a call is that? That's a true partner, right? No bullshit, straight to the point. And since then, we've, we've added, you know, I mean, what, fit, since that phone call, probably 2,000 restaurants. It's, you know, meaningfully great to be doing work that what we were doing before was a business operations thing that felt good to me personally, because I was like, it was like a fun jigsaw puzzle, right? Now what we're doing is actually important. Are these customers leaving the other third-party apps to come to you guys, or are they brand new to takeout and delivery or both? All all, all the above. Um, So we had about 3,000 restaurants and wineries on talk when this all started. Um, And some percentage of those are now up and running with the to-go and whatnot. A lot of the wineries in Napa, we had about 500 wineries. Um, We probably added another 200 since. And some of those are doing carry out and pick up, but a lot of them are considering like that in the summer, they'll be able to do their tasting rooms as picnics and whatnot. They have a lot of land, a lot of space out there. So that's not a problem for them. Um, Mm. A ton of new restaurant groups, a ton of people leaving the third party delivery apps because when, when it was supplemental income, they didn't really bother to do the math and go, Hey, this is costing 20% and it's a lot, but we don't really want to figure out our own logistics. Yeah. Or like we just turn it on when it's slow. Right. And, but now it's like, oh, that's all of my income. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want 20% to go out the door. So, you know, we charge a flat 3% of the total sale and it's totally transparent. That's always what we've done. We didn't like change it and we didn't make it up when we were doing this. That's what we did for events two years ago. And they supply their own delivery person and insurance and all that. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're working out um, ways to, for those folks that don't want to do that in about a week, we will have, um, delivery, um, you know, through other channels, um, mm. that, that they can pay for, but we're, we're negotiating a flat rate on that. Um, so, you know, one of my things is like, you don't want to be penalized for your success ever as a business owner. So, you know, we're meet, we're growing fast enough that the folks who have fleets of cars now care about us. And so we can say, yeah, we're not going to, you can't charge that much. We need to charge less. Uh, I'm a restaurant owner too. Um, and so like, I always ask myself, would I feel good about that? Not today in the time of panic, but would I feel good about that in six months? Um, and if the answer is yes, then we'll roll it out. So for restaurants that are like just a typical a la carte restaurant, um, h- how does it work with the slotted delivery time? If you want to do your whole menu on top, you can't. You can put up the whole a la carte menu. People can drop it in their shopping cart and click that. They pick a time when they want to pick it up or have it mm-hmm. delivered. And um, not all times would be available if correct. other people had already selected them. Yeah. And that's really critical because like an example is we had um, a talk client who went on to Toast um, and they're a Mexican restaurant. And uh, on Cinco de Mayo, um, 290 orders came in all at once. Oh my God. You now have 250 really pissed off people and a staff trying to look for the off button on the thing. And, <laughs> and you go like, oh, that's great. You got 290 orders. Well, it's actually useless. It's, it's worse than, than bad because you not only have to cancel most of those, you have to upset a lot of people who think they're going to get a meal and now they're not. And you have to right. figure out what to do in the restaurant. How many can we do? So by, by, and the cops come and break up the crowd outside your restaurant yeah. and 
people take pictures. I love Carbone. And that's the scene that happened at the beginning of the pandemic where, you know, there was no sense of, of pacing there. So that sense of kitchen pacing and expediting delivery is incredibly important. And no one else does it. Like that's the data yeah. structure that we had that no one else does. Well, we want to let you have time to talk to your, you know, get to your next meeting. But do you have any parting words of wisdom for small business owners who are listening to this right now? You know, the best time to start was six weeks ago. The next best time is tomorrow. So like, you know, figure out how to do it safely. People want to have that emotional connection with your restaurant. Um, And, you know, I, I think that this is not going away soon. Um, even as we reopen, um, slowly, um, we're gonna have to come up with innovative, cool, new things to do. And so just start doing it. Um, people are there. I mean, think about the amount of support that people have shown the industry, but ultimately the only way to really show support is to buy food. People are in the business of providing hospitality and food. And, you know, the faster we can do that, no matter how we accomplish that, the better. Yeah. And just from a personal perspective, I can't tell you how cool it's been to see restaurants even open up like once a week with something tiny on mm-hmm. talk, you know, like even one dish that they're doing once a week just to dip their, their their toe in the water. It's it's exciting. And I think maybe sometimes they think it's not we're not really a restaurant unless we have our whole our whole offering available. But it is cool to see like just a little a little something. I know amongst our staff, when we first started doing this, there was a lot of Nick's lost his mind. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, two weeks later, I started getting emails going, thank you. Like, I thought you lost your mind, but really you were just two weeks ahead. Our whole staff feels um, incredibly great about what we're doing. And we're getting emails every single day with people around their kitchen table, having their kids do the, the Alinea dessert course. <laughs> like, it's just so cool. Like someone did Bart Simpson out of the food yesterday. Um, we're yeah. getting just wacky stuff. And it's, so it's a connection that's the same, but different. And I'm telling you, I've never been happier with anything that Alinea has ever done than what we're doing right now. Wow. No hmm. award, no business, nothing. This is the coolest feel good moment we've ever had. Well, I look forward to the awards trying to, you know, come yeah. up with some at, at home. I don't even care. I, don't even care. I, I genuinely like, I love the yeah. community of that, but I genuinely do not care. Yeah. I, I just well, want everyone to as many restaurants as possible to survive into, into the future. Yeah. Well, it's it's nice to see people actually surviving through this and thriving through this. So it's great that you're setting that example. Thank you. And thanks for having me on. Amanda, we will be right back with a few fun food stories from this week. On June 14th, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your team Riley. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Amanda, we're back. What do you want to start with? Okay, Daniel, big story this week. A bunch of restaurant men went down to Washington, D.C. in person or over to Washington, D.C. in person, depending on where they were, to meet with the president and Ivanka Trump and whoever else to talk about the needs of restaurants. When you say restaurant men, that's like 
are we now splitting like we've gone the other way with like congressperson and actor? Are we now splitting restaurateur into restaurant men and restaurant women? <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just trying to point out that there were no women there. Restaurant bros. Okay. Pure men. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It was right. Ten ten of them descended on the White House. Uh apparently the Independent Restaurant Coalition wanted to send Katie Button and she was rejected from the list. So Will Gadara, who doesn't technically have a restaurant right now, went instead. Yeah. Just so many, so many men in suits in the photos. Uh, also, Thomas Keller was there rocking his new mustache, which was pretty cool. But a good, okay, but but originally there was backlash over a, a, a Trump thing because he created a little mini council of restaurant men to advise him mm-hmm. um, throughout. But this is actually a separate thing, right? This is the independent restaurant Council, the IRC, right? The IRC sent some people, right? So but this it wasn't is, this wasn't just the IRC. Okay, but this is kind of a win, right? Like, I mean, forget this everything was else. Good, yeah, yeah. The 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 gender politics was not great. And right. I wish there were women there, people of color there, but it was great for him to have independent restaurateurs in a room, yeah, so he could hear about their needs. Yeah. Uh, the transcript is available online. Um, the transcript is wild to read. Most of it is not talking about really anything. It's no. So this is a a, a panel, obviously, that they're meant to talk about the PPP loan, the Paycheck Protection Program loan, as well as you know what other suggestions they have for the White House to help bridge the gap for a lot of you know major or a lot of restaurants. And yeah, uh, and I think it was really important because. The Paycheck Protection Program, as we've talked about so many times on the show before, is not going to work for so many people, but it could work if some of the allowances were changed, if you could use it for a longer period of time, and if some of the other restrictions were lifted. And it's kind of up to Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. So having the ear of Trump could actually do a lot for these restaurant owners. Right, because it... It's a yes or no from him that could go a really long way. Yeah. If he hears from them like, oh, it would be so much easier to use this if we could have six months, he could he could make that change. Well, and and it seemed like based on the transcript in in good news, it seemed like he was very open to the idea that the 75 percent wouldn't have to be used entirely for payroll and that the the time in which you have to hire your staff back can be a lot uh the window can be a lot longer. Yeah, than... he seemed swayed. He by seemed their swayed. Stories, yeah. which is great. But uh, you know, there was there was a little bit of controversy that came out of this because uh, Sean Feeney, that's his name, right? Yeah, Sean Feeney. He's the owner of Missy and Lilia in Brooklyn. Uh, he and Trump were talking about his background. They were joking around about finance and trading Mm -hmm. and there's an exchange where sean feeney says we view you as one of us because the president is saying i have friends that are in the restaurant business there's no business they want to go into like the restaurant business we view you as one of us yeah we do yeah and there was a lot of uh you know maybe rightly so a lot of people mad that a lot of a lot of tweets a lot of like food media tweets yeah I mean, I have to say, if you're in the room with a guy who could hold the purse strings to billions of dollars that could help your industry, is it that bad to say, to be nice? 
no, no. I mean, no. You. Do. I mean, maybe you don't have to be that nice. Maybe you don't say you're one of us because you know it's a despicable. But they're all clearly person. studying the book of Trump before. You know, Keller's yeah. saying tremendous, tremendous, extraordinary. Feeney's they're shooting the shit about Goldman Sachs. Like they know they're playing the game. Like, like no one's. Can you imagine a world in which they storm in and then they're like, "We're not having this money because you have done this and this and this, and you've been terrible to these." Like, just get the job done. You know, yeah. save your businesses and then figure it out later. Yeah, I think someone interviewed Tom Clicky about this too yeah. when. Thomas Keller was getting shit for being nice to the president. And yeah. he's like, maybe I wouldn't, you know, call it an honor and a privilege to meet him, but I would go <laughs> sit at the table. You don't have to wear you know, a MAGA hat. If you have a chance to sit at the table, you sit at the table to get the money for your friends and colleagues and for the business. You can be cordial and not without protesting. Well, I think it's fair for people who absolutely do not want to sit at a table with this man they don't go they right. stay home and say i'm not i'm not fucking doing this and I'm that's not gonna probably the right thing to do yeah Maybe. and that person stays home right and the person who's ready to be the pragmatist is gonna go i mean maybe sean like loves the guy who knows but it's just like i don't think we can assume that he's a bad character because he was trying to win over the person who controls the money. And you know what? Oh my God. I don't know why I would even bother doing this right now, but like of all presidents, Trump is the most despicable, but also like maybe the only one to have restaurants as, uh, you know, tenants, Yes. <laughs> you know? So like yeah. he is more one of them than other pure politicians in the past. Potentially sure. like there's, there, there, there's a reason that this like kind of logic works. Like if you say you're one works. of us, like actually he is in a way in the restaurant business. He's in he the, I mean, yeah. technically one of them. I have he drank owns, out of a bottle of water with Trump's face on it. I've been to a wedding at a Trump golf course. Yeah. I mean, John George, one of New York's most iconic restaurants, right smack in JG in, uh, in the Trump Columbus Circle. I mean, I love the guy. <laughs> no, listen, it's it's terrible. And truthfully, though, I mean, like this is a deeper philosophical. I think that there is an argument to be made that of never bending morally, right? Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Yes. And I think that's it's totally like, are fair. Are you the idealist or the pragma pragmatist here? Right. But everyone who's tweeting and like trying to get IRC stuff in front of the president, in front of major politicians, that is this. Yeah. So it's like you're Politics you're at, is dirty you're at the one yard line. Don't tell them not to run it in the end zone. Yeah. And that's why I'm one of them. You know, I do sports yes. refs. <laughs> <laughs> there is a world in which Sean Feeney should have walked in with a living lamb and cut its throat and just being like, <laughs> the blood of the nation is on your hands. But then the problem with that is we'd all just be eating at McDonald's and Burger King for the rest of our existence. So yeah. I don't know. Take which side do you want to be on? I'm happy going to Lilia again, knowing that Sean. I would, I would go a step more immoral than that if it meant getting 120 billion dollars for restaurants. You know, how immoral would you like be in all the photo ops? Like Amanda Clute, editor in chief of <laughs> like Eater, kiss and the ring? The, yeah, how hard would you kiss the ring? Like, I don't know. Yeah, it's a tough. How question. much do I love restaurants? Isn't that funny? Like to be the one that saves them, you have to be the one that's hated by them. Wow. I would, would, I would do it. I would do it. Can I tell you a freaky dream I had one time? This oh, is, no. 
a freaky dream. I mean, I'll cut it short, but a freaky dream I had one time is I was uh, in this weird haunted hotel and it was just me and Trump cruising around. And I was so I was trying so hard to make him laugh. I really wanted to impress him. And then I woke up and I was like, what are, what are, what are you doing? Why would you care about this? And I don't want to. Was I can't there a lot, like billions of dollars on the line for people you care about? Yeah, it was like Lilia just fading in the background. <laughs> and I, every time I made him laugh. Gotta make him laugh. Yeah, Lilia just got a little more money. I don't want to dig into it now. And frankly, it's not. I don't. The listeners deserve better than me trying to figure out what this dream means. But And, uh, and so do I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> At least you can tell me to stop, though. They don't have that. They, yeah. I guess they have well, the 15 second skip button. They could just, yeah, yeah skip, skip. Stay ahead. with us. Okay, next. I mean, this is the greatest story of all time. Uh, Chuck E. Cheese. Yeah. You know it. You love it. I mean, have you ever been? Have you ever taken the kids to a to I a have, Chuck? indeed. Yeah, the one in Brooklyn is um, not very crowded. So it's a pretty easy way to spend an afternoon. Yeah. Chuck E. Cheese as a kid to me didn't hit the same as Dave and Buster's did as a teenager. Interesting. I just, I'm just going to say that. And again, we don't have to go farther into that. But uh, <laughs> a guy outside of Philadelphia ordered from a restaurant on Grubhub called Pasquale's Pizza and uh, received his pie, and dug into it and felt that, you know, it, it reminded him very much of the cheesy pies he had been eating at Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> so he texted his Grubhub driver. Uh, saying, you know, they exchanged some pleasantries, which honestly is nice. Left your food outside. Thanks. You're welcome. Enjoy the weekend. You too. Just curious. <laughs> was this food from Chuck E. Cheese? <laughs> Just curious. Uh, and then the Grubhub driver responds, there was a Chuck E. Cheese store, but the windows had the wing restaurant on them. Uh, I was curious too. It smelled good. <laughs> Didn't need I that, like that part. Detail. Yeah. Ha ha ha. It is good, but it's totally the Chuck E. Cheese pizza. My husband said that the chef character at Chuck E. Cheese is named Pasquale. So I think they just made up this secondary restaurant for takeout now that they can't be open. Grubhub guy. Sneaky, sneaky. LOL. I get it, though. You know what I mean? Again, <laughs> I do know what you mean. I know what you mean. Lit. It's fascinating, but all of these, you know, but a restaurant that is based solely in the in the in the IRL, the user experience, having this open kitchen and not wanting to sell their pizza as Chuck E. Cheese pizza, it 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 highlights a couple of things. It highlights how easy it is to that to do that on a delivery service. Sure, fascinating. Yeah, ghost kitchen, right? Right. I, I'm talking. To, I've talked to people who are who are creating nine different concepts to run out of their single restaurant in mm. Brooklyn, pivoting to delivery ghost kitchens. I mean, but it's just, it's just hilarious. I like, I don't think I would know if I was eating the Chuck E. Cheese pizza. I know these <laughs> people you? are in a very unique pocket to understand what had gone on here. Yeah. To uncover this is really interesting. Um, really I mean, good. maybe they, I don't know anyway, where, yeah. where did this take place? Philadelphia. Maybe Philly. they knew the address was there or something. It's bizarre to me that they would know based on taste alone. <laughs> like, oh, knew. this is Chuck E. Cheese. Well, Chuck E. Cheese has a very distinct kind of cardboardy, melty taste. I don't even mm. mean that in a bad way, but it's just like. You don't mean that in a bad way? You mean that in the best way? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know if I mean it in the best way, but it's. I actually, now, now that I. Now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know. I don't. I kind of have a. I kind of have a memory. Apparently, Applebee's has also been doing similar, and they have a delivery-only concept called neighborhood wings. 
<laughs> that one is a little bit more sinister to me a little bit. Why? What's sinister about it? Well, you're not a neighborhood restaurant. So, you know, you're not. I mean, I feel like they're of trying all to, the crimes on delivery apps, like saying you're but, a neighborhood restaurant, but, you're a giant chain. Is but not let us them. not forget even the most petty of crimes. Hmm. I just think, well, the the reactions online to this were like, I didn't want to order. I didn't want to freaking support Applebee's. Right. I wanted to support neighborhood wings. Okay. <laughs> it's another lesson to the consumer. Like, pay some attention to what you're doing. Like, look up these places that you're ordering from. Don't just pick some thumbnail on Grubhub and have that be your dinner. Be more conscientious with your dollars. I would like to have some insight into the decision internally at Chuck E. Cheese right between like why don't they just serve it as Chuck E. Cheese but like what is the downside that you're losing your name recognition although it's for like weird coin activated games but you're losing your your name recognition you're becoming just Pasquale's pizza yeah but people don't go to Chuck E. Cheese for the pizza no but they don't go to Pasquale's for anything right but I think they know that just launching a delivery only Chuck E. Cheese is not going to work. Right. But they're like, if everyone brand hates that our no pizza. One, yeah, everyone hates our pizza. How can we get someone to order it? <laughs> let's this do the our, same. This is our let's not chef. fix it. Let's no. cheat people. Yeah. <laughs> not cheating them. It's tricking them. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I guess you're right. And, you know, it's just giving them a fresh start. Erasing the stigma that might be attached to Chuck E. Cheese for a customer who you know, might like this new pizza. You're right, because a lot of people have had some really miserable experiences dealing with their kids being screamy and whiny. And maybe if you see the pizza without the games and without the the ambiance that a lot of people associate with, you know, frustrating times, yeah, maybe culinarily it can stand on its own. Okay, Amanda, well, um, uh, that was the... That was our our dip into the state of the world in the food the food world. Uh, we this has been you know fun. Uh, thanks so much to Nick Akonis for coming on and talking to us. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram or on Talk. And uh, Amanda, thanks to you. You know, thank you, um, Daniel. It's tougher. You know what I will tell you? It's tougher to cut someone off over Zoom, and for that, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> I just want to mention to our audience that I got to see you in person on Saturday from a distance, and it was a delight. Was I, was I great? Yeah, we drank margaritas out of salad bowls and just had a grand old time. Yeah, we had fun. 